Welcome back to another week. You all, the excitement. You're going to hear me doing a little bit of fangirling here. When I, my son was a little, around a year or so, I discovered this book, shared it with a couple of my girlfriends who were on a very similar trajectory in their parenting experiences, just about within six months of each other. We read through it. We shared about it. It was like a little book club. And of course, I decided I'm going to going to reach out and see if I can't get this person to come on. And they were kind enough to say yes. So I let my girlfriends know they're coming on. We're all so excited. And now I am excited for you because you get to hear all about No Drama Discipline with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She is the author of The Bottom Line for Baby and co-author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and, as mentioned, No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 50 languages, as well as The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up. She is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. Dr. Bryson keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world, and she frequently consults with schools, businesses, and other organizations. A licensed clinical social worker, Tina is a graduate of Baylor University with a PhD from USC. The most important part of her bio, she says, is that she's mom to her three boys. You can learn more about Dr. Bryson at tinabryson.com, and that will be in the show notes. Welcome, y'all, to another week of the Perinatal Podcast. This episode of the Perinatal Podcast is supported by Needed, optimal nutrition for mamas before, during, and after pregnancy. My current favorites are Stress Support with Adaptogenic and Nervine Botanicals selected and dosed to balance and uplift me. Immune Support because no matter the time of year, my children bring home all kinds of germs from school. And Collagen Protein, which helps support joints, pelvic floor tissue, skin elasticity, and hair and nail strength. Use code PERINATALPODCAST for 20% off one-time purchase orders or for the first three months of our one-month subscription option. Your mental health is your dopest health, but you don't have to tend to it by yourself. Get a tribe, get inspired, and you'll get ahead. Get someone to talk to, don't keep it bottled in. You're beautifully human, you should remember this. So it's okay for you to feel emotions. At times we all need to clear our heads And when you do, just holler at Therapy by Meg I have actual chills Dr. Bryson, welcome Please call me Tina We're just going to talk about being moms and kids And I'm so happy to be here Thank you for the invitation it is, it is such a treat. I was telling you before we started recording, uh, this book I found when I, my, my son was under one, my girlfriends and I had all had babies within six months of each other. It was quarantine and we were like, no drama discipline. That That's what we need in our lives. And so I've got, I've got highlights. I've got dog ears. We've had little like um, chats, phone chats about it. So I'm really excited to have you. It's, a, it's great to have you here. And also Baylor, um, are you from Texas originally? I married a Texan almost 30 years ago. I got married when I was 22. And so I was really a young, young um, wife. Um, but I married a Texan and I did, um, I transferred out and and went to Baylor. And I have a son who just graduated from Baylor. So lots of Texas connections, but I was raised in Southern California and I'm a California girl through and through. And yes, I, live, yeah. um, I live in Pasadena, California, kind of near the Rose Bowl. Yeah. Um, and I just, I love it here. <laughs> Wonderful. I mean, I am envious of your weather here in Kansas. We have all of the seasons and we have them aggressively. So <laughs> I love that. That's a great way to say that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so tell us, how did you decide to get into pediatric and adolescent psychotherapy? I never meant to be a therapist and I never planned on being an author. Um, so my plan are. from the time I was like eight years old, I knew I wanted to be a stay at home mom. That's what mm -hmm. I wanted to do more than anything. So I got my undergrad in education and I was like, I'm going to be a high school English teacher. Um, but then I got married and we ended up in Kentucky where my husband was working on a doctoral degree. Um, he's an English professor mm -hmm. and, um, we, I was working as a social worker and I, I eventually got a master's in social work. I was working as a social worker, um, doing direct services with victims and with, uh, like victim advocacy kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. then, um, was doing a bunch of consulting and then I had a baby and I was like, and now I'm going to stay home forever. And, um, but then my husband got a job in California, which thrilled me because that's where my my family was and I was dying to get back to Southern California. Sure. Um, but then my husband was like, my son was like, 
18 months and he was like, mm, we can't afford to live here. You have to go to work. And I was like, okay, well, if I have to work, I want to be a professor because that's a good mom schedule for me. Like I can be off in the summers and stuff. So let me get a PhD real fast. And then I can be a teacher. I can be a professor. So that was the plan. <laughs> but I became completely captivated by learning about the brain and the nervous system. Mm -hmm. I had heard Bruce Perry talk. Um, many of you know his work. Um, he wrote the book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And he recently wrote a book with Oprah called What Happened to You? Yes. And I had heard him speak. And I was like, I'm so captivated. And for me, I was always, I'm a really curious person. So when I was looking at like challenging kids' behaviors or, you know, like working with um, with people that I was working with, I was like, but what's the mechanism? Like why, what's happening here? I always wanted to like peel back the layers more and more and more. So um, I came across this field called interpersonal neurobiology. And when I learned about it, I was like, people need to know about this. I need to share yes. with parents and teachers and therapists. And so then I went into the pediatric and adolescent psychotherapy route. And then I had been studying with Dan Siegel, who's my co-author on four of the books. Um, and I and I saw so I went to him and I'm like, I'm in the parenting trenches. And everything I'm learning about the brain and the nervous system shakes up everything that our culture does around seeing and responding to kids' behaviors. And I've got to share this with people. So that's kind of how it came about was like, I was passionate about what I was learning. I was using it in the parenting moments when my kid wouldn't get out of the bathtub and when they were having a meltdown about something I thought was so stupid and all of these things. And then as I started sharing it with other people, it just went like wildfire. People were hungry. You know, the whole brain child came out. It'll be 12 years old this fall, mm. um, which is crazy in fall of 23. Um, it's like, it's a, it's a teen, it's becoming a teenager. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> so, but these ideas, you know, when the whole brain child came out and when no drama discipline came out a few years later, it was in lots of ways, it was a very revolutionary way to do what I feel like my life's work has been about, which is to change culture around how we see and respond to kids' behaviors and how we show up as parents to help our kids thrive, um, primarily through the kind of relationship we have with them. Yes. Oh, that's lovely. And yeah, I thought it was interesting too, because I don't know if a lot of people are aware of interpersonal neurobiology. And I, I, I was new to the expression as well in the study when I was, when I was introduced to your book. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what that looks like? Yeah, interpersonal neurobiology is a framework or kind of a lens that we look through to understand the reality of life mm -hmm. and to really understand ourselves and behavior. So Dan Siegel, my co-author on four of the books, um, is kind of known as the father of interpersonal neurobiology. But mm -hmm. what it really is, is looking at how the brain, which is part of our whole nervous system, and our mind, which is like what we give attention to and our ex our own personal, individual, subjective experiences um, and our relationships, how they all interact to shape who we are. So it's really pulling together lots and lots of fields of science, including like psychology and neuro um, neuroscience and many, many other fields to come together to give us a way to look at how we influence optimal development and how we change behavior over time by the kinds of specific repeated experiences we're given, knowing that our brain is always changing in response to experiences. So when we change the kinds of experiences we provide, we're literally not just influencing someone's mind or their character or their behaviors, we're actually changing how the brain works. So I'll give like a very specific example, which is like, if I'm a really um, impatient reactive parent, Mm -hmm. But I start today practicing pausing and taking a deep breath and calming down my nervous system before I react to my kids. And I start practicing that and I'm going to be imperfect at it. And I'm going to be bad at it, but I'm going to keep practicing it. Once I've done it over and over and over, eventually my brain wires to do that automatically. So it becomes okay. more part of who I am. So that's what's so exciting when we think about our kids or ourselves is that we have the tremendous power to change. And the more we know about the brain and the nervous system and the role that relationships play in that, yes. the more powerful it is. So that's why I love interpersonal neurobiology. It's really it's about so, that is, how the brain changes interpersonally. Absolutely. It's so beautiful too, because 
we talk about that a lot in therapy, like in one-on-one -on -one therapy where we talk about the different skills or reaction versus response and the things that we want to hope to get to. And it's like, we don't expect perfection ever, but certainly not a lot of change overnight, but to be able to, the more that you practice, the more natural it feels. Yeah. And so if you find yourself hollering at your kids, if you start practicing these things, that fuse becomes a little longer if you go with totally. the fuse metaphor by by the practice. I love that. Yeah, it's a, it's really, for me, it's an entire body of science that gives us a lot of hope mm -hmm. um, and a lot of, you know, one of the big messages in our book, The Power of Showing Up, mm -hmm. is that history is not destiny. So no matter what parent we were earlier today or last week or the last seven years or whatever it was, that we can make a change now. Mm -hmm. And as we start providing those new experiences for ourselves and for our kids, we create mm -hmm. a New, a whole new way of being. Um, so for me, I love that message of graciousness and hope. Um, and that we, you know, really, and there's a lot of science that says we can mess up all the time. As long as we make repair with our kids, it's actually beneficial for them that we mess up. I love that science. Oh, I do too. It's just very validating too. And it's nice because then they can see us make mistakes and how we choose to respond to that and apologize or make changes or moving forward i'd like to and then they realize that they don't have to be perfect and also this is what it looks like to make a thoughtful amends in the situation yeah, yeah. yes i feel like there isn't i feel like the more that we're learning about parenting that things are getting a little better and we're being a little less rigid on the expectations of ourselves but there still is that like the parenting guilt of how you need to do it right and you need to do it all. And, and I, I do think it's less healthy for our kids to, to live in a space like that for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when I wrote the book, the bottom line for baby, which was um, it was the book I most wanted as a new mom, because like, mm -hmm. I knew I was trying to make a decision about something like, let's say pacifier use or something like that. Like, should I let him use a pacifier? Should I not? I would read and then I would get like convinced one way and then I'd read something else and it would have a really good argument the other way. And then I was like, well, yeah. what the hell do I do? Yes. So what bottom line for baby is, is 65 of the most controversial topics, the things we get the most competing advice about. And it's done alphabetically. So you can just flip to P for pacifier. And it really is like, here are the main schools of thought. Here's what the science, the quality science says, and then here's a bottom line around it. And really the bottom line in a lot of them and the overall bottom line of the whole book is that mm. trust your baby, trust your child, trust yourself. And every family is different. So do what works for your family. And for me, like yes. whether you post sleep or not, whether you do cry it out or not, like all of those things at the end of the day, the most, and of course I have opinions about those things and there's science about all of those things. Sure. But at the end of the day, you know, for me, like, I'm like, wherever the most amount of people are getting the most amount of sleep, that's a, that's a really important piece of the puzzle. But yes. the, at the end of the day, what matters most is that we show up for our kids that mm -hmm. we, you know, like, I'll, let me give another example. Okay. So my best friend that I grew up with, we became best friends in fifth grade. We went all through high school together. We actually went to college together. She wore my wedding dress. Like, her name was wow. Gina. Gina and Tina were everywhere. Like we were like, when we gave presents, it was always from both of us. It was like, we were, you know, like completely sewn at the hip. Hmm. Um, she, I was trying to get pregnant. She was not trying to get pregnant, but we both got pregnant and our due dates were one day apart. And wow. was, of course, like, this is a thing, right? And what was really interesting is that she and I did pretty much opposite in many, many parenting things. Uh-huh. Like she did more cry it out stuff. I did not. Yeah. Um, you know, she had a really, really different. She and her husband did things really differently than my husband and I did. And you know what? Her kids are amazing. And yeah. you know what? My kids are amazing. And so mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the stuff we get really neurotic about and we beat ourselves up around, we focus often on the wrong things that matter the most. And in the moment, particularly with your firstborn, it seems oh, like- sure it can activate a lot of this fear-based parent, like, oh no, if I let my kids sleep in the bed with me, they'll never sleep on their own. That's just not true. And you learn that, you know, eventually. Um, yes. But the things we worry about and we think have to be just perfect, or we make going to make a mistake, the more kids you have, the more relaxed you get about that stuff, because you realize every kid is super different. And the things we yes. worry about are probably not things we actually need to worry about. What our kids really need from us is the four S's that we talk about in the power of showing up. They need to feel safe and seen 
and soothed, like comforted when they're having a hard time. Mm-hmm. And then, then they'll develop the fourth S of security, knowing that their brain will wire to know that if they have a need, we're going to see it and show up for them. Mm. That's the number one. And that's what leads to what's called secure attachment, having nothing to do with attachment parenting, by the way. Yes. But yeah, I love that though. It's like the four S, the safe, seen, soothed that can lead to the security. And it's it's really fascinating to me. I, I specialize in perinatal mental health and I have a lot of younger parents that I work with and that so many people do feel entitled to provide their opinions <laughs> yep, yep. to new parents, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes not requested. <laughs> and often unsolicited unsolicited and oftentimes i mean always not the same baby but oftentimes very different situations and there definitely is no one size fits all and i hope that people if you leave nothing else from here is that you leave knowing that whatever you come up with for your family is the thing that's going to make the most sense for you in your current situation versus what some celebrity or your grandmother or somebody the else. neighbor or the lady at the grocery store. And in fact, I'll just give you all a little nugget, like a great phrase when mm. someone's like giving, if it's a family member or someone you love or care about, and they're telling you, you should do things a different way. You can just say, I'm, I love that you love our baby so much, or I love that you love our kids so much. And you just, you just want them to have the best. And I really hear you mm-hmm. and I'm going a different way. So yeah. That way you're really acknowledging it, but you're, you're setting a boundary. You're the parent and you, you know, and people give advice all the time. They're like, oh, you know, your kid really hasn't had enough exposure to X, Y, and Z. And you're like, you don't even know what I did all morning. Like all morning, my kid had like, for example, uh, we can all be judgy about kids on screens and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But like, if I've played engaged with my kid all morning long and I need a freaking break, like I'm going to put on magic school bus for my kid. And if they just see that, they're going to be like, oh, she uses screens too much. No. Yeah. I'm, I need a break. So I'm a better parent, you know? So it's, yes. it's, we just need people to leave us be sometimes. <laughs> well, that's very true. And I like that. So I like what you were saying. I was like, I love that you love us so much and I'm going a different way. Shut it down. Set the boundary, move forward. I love that idea. I say, I literally end every podcast episode with be curious, not judgmental from Ted Lasso, yeah. because yeah. I, the, if we, I just feel like as I'm getting older, I'm caring less about things that I thought were important, especially as they impact other people's life and have nothing to do with me. And I'm like, why am I taking on this energy from somewhere else? Like if you want to co-sleep and I think you're doing, as long as I'm not actually concerned for anybody's safety or you want to use a pacifier and I'm not like, what conversation do I need to be having with you? Right? Like none is the answer. How can I support you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I will say, just since you mentioned the magic school bus, my son got a cut about a month ago and he was like, you know, the white blood cells are going to come and help heal that. What? You're three. What are you saying? You have those moments like where you're in the car and you're like singing wheels on the bus. And then you realize your kids actually aren't even in the car. Right. Like, I feel like, I mean, that's happened to me. I kind of feel like I would be really happy to watch magic school bus by myself without Mm -hmm. like, like, I think it's a fabulous show. (laughs) I'm watching it as child honestly and yeah. I it, I was so wonderful and not everything has to be educational but certainly in those moments that I love bluey it's seven minutes it's super consumable and that made me think too like sometimes mama needs 20 minutes where no one's talking to her, oh, or touching her. I mean I'm a big fan I'm a big fan of parental timeout I'm a big fan of like 20 minutes of my kid watching a show is going to make me a more regulated parent the rest of the day that's good parenting so mm-hmm. no, we can't judge each other yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. So that's the message for today. T- take it away team is <laughs> no judging each other. So. Yourself, don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the being great, the graciousness, and we do need to give ourselves more grace. And I think I- I've talked about it with students. I've talked about it with clients. I teach over at the University of Kansas. And uh, like, what is it that makes us hold ourselves to such a high standard while we have so much more grace for a lot of people, especially our friends and loved ones in our lives? Like, if that were a friend, I would say, oh, my gosh, take a break, throw on a bluey, throw on a magic school bus, whatever. But for me, it's not OK. Like, no, but I need to be better. I'm using air quotes strongly here, but like, I need to hold myself. To, and I no one is able to figure out what it is about. Like, it just seems ubiquitous universal. Yeah. I have so much space for somebody else to take a break and go easy on themselves. And I struggled with that for myself. Totally. And we, you know, we oftentimes like 
we'll be hard on ourselves. Like, oh, it's my fault if something bad's going on, mm. but we almost never take credit when something good's going on. Hello. Yeah. We'll be like, oh, I just got lucky. And you're like, no, like give, you know, so I think we tend to like around negative emotions or negative outcomes, we tend mm -hmm. to take that on. But when it comes yes. to positive emotions and positive outcomes, we don't. So I think that's, mm -hmm. I'm, I do some um, consulting and coaching with some elite athletes. And that's an issue we talk about all the time. It's like, if a race goes bad, they, you know, beat themselves up. But if a race goes good, they're like, oh, I got really lucky. The weather was good. And, you know, it's like, no, let's, you know, and we do that so much as parents. Goodness. Yes. yes. Okay. We'll have to have this conversation later, but like my dream is to get a PhD and do sports and a performance. Oh. <laughs> that could be a whole well, and I do have to say, you know, earlier I said, I, you know, I want to stay, I did get the PhD and I did it while I was like, I had two babies while I was in the PhD program mm -hmm. and I was learning interpersonal neurobiology, studying with Dan. And I was like sitting in LA traffic thinking about like, how do I, what does this look like in the everyday yeah. discipline moments and things like that. And um, fortunately, because my husband's an English professor and we co-own our business together, our clinical practice called the Center for Connection, like we just really co-parented and shared the workload. And I was able to just really, even while I wrote books and while I started this clinical practice and was doing psychotherapy, I did a lot of work after kids went to bed and I was really able to be super engaged in my kids' lives. They're old now. My mm -hmm. kids are 23, 20, and my baby will be 17 this month. Um, oh. And I'm, you know, I, I feel like I said, I never planned on working and I'm so glad I did the, the reward of being able to do this work has been incredible. And I, I feel like as parents, you know, we really can do a good job at, um, we can't do everything all at once perfectly with no way, yes. but we can do different things together. Some, you know, well, lots of times. Um, and so I, I did, I was able to do the PhD and I was able to be really engaged with my kids and I was able to work and it meant it wasn't perfect. It meant, yeah, I probably didn't get enough sleep and I cut some corners here and there and we yeah. ate, you know, Chipotle two nights a week instead of like organic um, steamed vegetables, whatever. Yes. It, it yeah. all worked. <laughs> yes. And everyone's doing just fine. It's, it's That's yes, right. That's right. it is amazing. The things that we, like you mentioned too, with the first people, the things that were like, this is so important to me. And then, yeah. yeah. So I understand that you have an entire book on this and it would be wild of me to be like, explain it to me in one sentence, but like, what does it mean to focus on the whole brain child? What, what can, what's kind of the elevator pitch of that? Yeah. The elevator pitch of the whole brain child is that your child's brain develops and gets wired from the repeated experiences that they have and mm -hmm. that we can hold their whole brain in mind um, by providing them with really great relational experiences. And what we do in that book is to really say, okay, look, if you're a kid, so it's, it, it's really helping understand how our child's brain works and how we can help them understand their own brain. Um, and to help us see that the way that we often think about things is just not real. It's not, in, it's not based in any kind of fact or reality. For example, tantrums. Okay. So typically when a child is having a massive meltdown, they can't access the part of their brain where they use logic and that they can process a lot of verbal information. But yes. typically when a kid is having a meltdown, grownups say things like use your words or, you know, you just can't do that. I know you really want to, but you can't do that. And let me explain to you why that's not a, that's a safety hazard. And when you, and so we do, we basically provide these like left brain linguistic logical responses in a moment when they're actually more in their right hemisphere in terms of processing emotion and bodily sensations. And so when we start to understand that, I can think about my child's whole brain and I can go, oh, you're having a right brain moment and I'm coming in hot with my left brain stuff. I'm actually going to now respond more with right brain stuff, more nonverbal, more um, um, a lot less words, a lot less logic. And I'm going to get you regulated first and back into a whole brain moment where you're using your whole brain, not just your right hemisphere. Yes. Then we can have a logical conversation or whatever. So I think for me, it was about let's understand how our children's brains work. Let's mm. teach them how their brains work. And then we can raise whole brain children. Um, and there mm. are cartoons in the book, um, that are helpful yes. for adults too, um, that help us understand, you know, how our, our nervous systems and our brains work. Mm -hmm. I read um, a quote, it was referencing a study, and I apologize, it's not great to reference things if you don't remember what they fully were, but it was talking about how like 75% of the people who participated in the study were 
operating at a stress level and there's their nervous system like almost consistently when they were awake and i feel like that can kind of be applied in the united states it can be applied probably globally and and it's it's helpful for us in those moments to help the children for us to be able to interact with them in a meaningful way that helps them to be able to feel regulated and also being able to help us feel, I don't want to say in control of the situation because ha ha children, ha ha, but <laughs> to feel, what is the way that I'm trying to describe it? Not lost in the moment. Like, I feel like I have kind of an operating guideline of what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to not say in that situation versus let's just throw some stuff at the wall and see what sticks. What gets you to calm down air quotes? What gets you to stop screaming? Yeah. And so that's a lovely way of looking at it and that like conceptualizing. Yeah. And you know, the very first strategy of the whole brain child is called connect and redirect. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that, you know, so much of the time we just, we've been taught how to do this. This is how our society works. We just come in and we solve, but really what's so much more effective in getting the brain more regulated and letting them learn is to connect first, to mm-hmm. co-regulate first before we redirect behaviors and those kinds of things. And then when we wrote the whole um, No Drama Discipline, half of the book is connection strategies and half of the book is redirect strategies. Um, and so it really is fundamental to really everything um, that we know about as mammals. What we need is is at our worst, that's when we most need connection. So whether mm-hmm. that looks like a tantrum or whether it looks like anxiety or bedtime fears um or whether it looks like devastation and sadness or embarrassment or whatever it is that that as mammals so this applies to us as parents too that at our worst that's when we most need connection and usually what happens is when we're at our worst for kids who have undeveloped brains um still developing brains it often looks like really bad behavior Mm-hmm. And connection is actually usually the last thing that yeah. grownups were traditionally responding with. It was much more punitiveness and mm-hmm. reactiveness and those kinds of things. So in lots of ways, I think, you know, it's a, it's, I really wanted nothing short in these books. Uh, I, I, I didn't, I had this really lofty goal of like, I want to change culture. Yes. And, you know, it's funny, we even when we wrote No Drama, we had a colleague that we really trust say, please don't use the word discipline in the title of your discipline book. And we were like, why? And she said, because people associate the word discipline with punishment. Yes. And I said, okay, well, how about we reclaim the meaning of the word then? Let's yes. totally change. So that's really what we're going for in these books is to revolutionize culture. And we're not the only ones doing it. You know, there are there are many, many other people who are also um, part of this this movement, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, is not permissive. We get it's funny. A lot of times people say that whole brain child and no drama discipline are like the some of the the main sources for what people have labeled gentle parenting. And I've never said I'm a gentle parenting per- like that's not the title yeah. I would use or claim because um having boundaries and having limits and um expectations and holding our our kids to them provides a sense of safety and um it also gives them repeated experiences of not having a green light everywhere they go in the world so it helps them build resilience so i don't like absolutely the idea of gentle parenting it's not something it's it's respectful for sure but it is boundaried and sometimes it requires a lot of like grown-ups to be in charge Mm -hmm. the perinatal podcast is supported by daily harvest it's easy to make fruits and vegetables part of your daily routine with daily harvest delicious chef-crafted foods delivered to your door and ready in minutes. I'm a busy mama who admittedly doesn't always make getting my daily veggies a priority, so Daily Harvest has taken a lot of that work off my plate. Organic, nourishing, clean foods with no artificial anything, ready to go in minutes, it's a no-brainer. Use code PERINATAL at checkout for $40 off your first box. The Perinatal Podcast is supported by Mom and Dad makers of exceedingly comfortable and stylish pumping, nursing, and maternity bras. Specially designed clips and straps allow for easy access to feed your little one. The design is specified to support the extra weight and increased size of your chest as milk starts to build. And the beautiful fabrics and colors are created to help you feel sexy and current. Go to momanda underscore bras on Instagram, us.momanda.cc for my listeners in the States, 
and shop.mamanda.cc for my international listeners. Use code perinatal for 10% off your entire order of $40 or more. That's a really, I'm glad that you've made that distinction too, because I, it's so tough. Social media does so much for us and we've come a long way in so many ways. And I also, it's tough because people will catch a buzzword or read a meme and consider themselves an expert or conflate the idea and start talking about things. And that's not the same thing, no drama discipline versus gentle parenting. And it's good to be able to understand what those differences are. And I appreciate you being able to share that. And I love that idea too, because my husband and I joke, my son who just turned four, like he's not very coachable at the moment. (laughs) And so we talk about like, all we can continue to do is continue to set boundaries, continue to try to let him know, like when you're kicking the soccer ball, this is where the goal is. Like, that's just the rule of the game. Also have fun because you're at the time three, like, but the limitations and the boundaries are what very helpful. It is, it's what causes people to feel safe. And even though they might not be smiling and doing backflips over the boundaries it's how they feel secure and parents included you know i have i often have people who come to my talks or whatever and one of the questions i get is like okay i know what not to do but i don't know what to do to do and i think part of it is because with social media and and things like that i think parents have misunderstood that what that what they're supposed to be doing is like sitting in their child's feelings for hours. Like you're so dis- you don't want to go to bed. I know it's so hard. And they do all this beautiful emotional responsiveness, but it drags on and on. And so then parents mm. are like, what the heck do I do? Yeah. So I think it's really, you know, in no drama discipline, let me, and let me just give the like, Oh, first, before I do, I have to just say, bless you for having a four-year-old. I found four <laughs> to be the very hardest age. And I mean, even through my teenage, my son's teenage years, four was the very, very hardest. Um, I think they're incredible because they're brilliant and they have yes. all these amazing cognitive advances and all these motor advances. So their yes. bodies can do incredible things, but they have zero emotional breaks yes. and they have terrible judgment. So it's like the yes. worst combination. And I yes. will say too, that we know that between ages three and five is a huge, the largest, um, like longest window of right brain growth spurt that's happening. So, you know, in the whole brain child, we talk about how like, when our kids are not in regulated states, they're kind of like on the bank of the river of chaos, or they're on the bank of the river of rigidity, or they might just be jumping back and forth. And they're not in the river of well-being where they're flexible and adaptive and stable. Oh my gosh. So he probably lives on the banks of rigidity and chaos. But what's what's incredible is that we know that between three and five, there's this huge right hemisphere um brain surge, which allows them to really play and experiment with and try on emotions. This is why, why tantrums are happening around three and, and into four. But by the time they're five or five and a half, they are much more rational creatures. And starting around age five, they have a huge brain growth spurt in the left hemisphere between age mm-hmm. five and about seven and a half to seven and three quarters. Um, and this is where, this is why reading comes online typically at this part, because the left yes. brain capacity is required for that. So it's really interesting to think about these, um, how the, the hemispheres specialize in different things and mm-hmm. their spurts of, of growth really help us understand yes. why four is so hard. Um, he just yeah. turned four. So yeah, <laughs> it's, tough. it's really tough. They're, am- I mean, they're amazing. They're amazing. 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 And they- really challenging um yes hilarious um, curious physical you're right the physical part i mean some of the stuff he can do and the jumps and it's wonderful and then also yeah i like it. you said living on the banks of chaos and rigidity and bouncing between the two is really a pretty accurate description and and meg you know really what we talk about in all of the books is that the challenging moments the discipline moments the moments of meltdowns all of these things yes. are actually opportunities mm-hmm. to give our kids the kinds of experiences that allow them to kind of expand the river so they don't live on the banks of chaos and rigidity as much and instead they're in this river of well-being where they're regulated and they they have emotional and cognitive and behavioral agility to kind of shift and and navigate things with resilience. And the way that happens is how we handle these everyday moments and and what else contributes to that amazing thing that we want is nothing to do with us. So I just want to say that too is that mm. 
we can trust development and as development unfolds our kids have greater and greater capacity that has nothing to do with us so it doesn't we don't have to hold the pressure of all of that every moment does not have to be so precious you don't have to have a reflective dialogue with your child every moment of every little emotional ping during the day mm -hmm. it's really about mm -hmm trusting development to unfold. And typically when I have anxiety around like, is my kid where they're supposed to be? Shouldn't he be able to do this by now, right. et cetera? Or like, is he on track? Whenever I think about like whatever the particular skill is, like let's say it's getting homework turned in on time. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, is he doing better at that now than he was six months ago? And when you okay. have really little kids, just think two or three months ago. Yes. Um, are we seeing less meltdowns? Are we seeing whatever? And generally that can be helpful. It's not a hundred percent perfect in terms of our lens, because I will say, and this is just to warn you and give you a heads up, typically around ages five to seven, kids have another spurt of separation anxiety. And this is typically where, and it can start as early as four. They previously would go to the bathroom by themselves, or they previously would go into their room or go into another part of the house or go into the yard by themselves. Hmm. But all of a sudden they want you to go with them everywhere and they're oh. nervous about it. And the reason for that is because they've had another brain growth spurt that allows them to cognitively imagine scarier things happening Mm -hmm. including even something bad happening to their parents. But development is not synchronous. So emotional development and cognitive development don't happen at the same time. Well, that's a fact. A cognitive spurt. And then the emotional spurt will come, but it's behind it. And so they don't have the emotional agility and resilience to handle those big new thoughts. So they feel afraid. Now, often in our culture, we're like, well, you don't want to coddle them. So you just be like, you're a big boy, you can handle it, which, yeah. you know, it's fun. It's great sometimes to say to our kids, I trust that you can handle this. That's a really great thing to tell our kids sometimes. But when they're vulnerable in terms of fear, particularly, we want them to feel safe. And when they feel safe enough, they will move toward autonomy. So I think we, this, and this leads right into the discipline stuff. We are wrong about how we can spoil our kids. You cannot, and this is based on decades and decades of research, you cannot spoil your kid with too much affection. You can't spoil them with too much love or attention. Like when people talk about, oh, she's just trying to get attention and you should ignore that bad behavior. That's just old science. Uh -huh. So we can't, we're not going to spoil them with our attention. Attention is a need. And mm -hmm. when they are doing what people refer to as attention seeking behaviors, it's actually yes. connection seeking behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, and if they have our attention on them, it, they can be more regulated. So they're, they're seeking regulation during that time. We can't spoil them with too much emotional responsiveness where we can spoil them, where we can go wrong is if we don't have limits and boundaries and expectations. There's a huge difference, and I'll, I'll use this as an example. I think it's fine sometimes for parents to change their mind about a boundary even. There's a huge difference. Let's say you're a mom walking to your car and you're schlepping like a pack mule. You've got 16 buckets and your kid's favorite bucket's way up on your arm and then you've got four more buckets and you're carrying a backpack and a baby and a stroller and you've got a four-year-old and you're just trying to get to the car and it's 100 degrees and you're hungry and you haven't peed by yourself in four years and wow. it's just a moment, right? Yeah. So if the kid is crying and whining, I want my bucket, I want it right now. Okay, so here are some good options. A good, one, good option is to say, buddy, I know you love your bucket and you really want your bucket right now. I can't set it down. And it's okay if you need to be sad about that. I'm right here with you while you're sad. So oh, you're saying go to a behavior. No, I'm not stopping and putting everything down to give you what you want right now. That's not going to work for me. Um, but I'm going to say yes to your emotional, your, to your experience. So I'm saying no to a behavior, but yes to the child. Um, um, another great response is it's okay to change your mind. If you say, you know what, buddy, this bucket is so important to you and we have time. Sure. I can, I can set these things down and hand you your bucket right now. No problem. Okay. Yes. That's totally fine too. What we don't want to do is say, fine, and throw everything down and be like, here's your bucket. Yes. Because what happens there is, first of all, we're we're being kind of reactive and unpredictable and aggressive in tone, which we yes. try not to do. Um, but it's not going to damage your child if you do that. Later, you just repair. You go, you know what? Mommy had a gruff tone in the car. I wish I had said that nicer. Can yes. I have a do or whatever? That's fine, too. But what happens is when our kids push, which inevitably they do, and we are like, okay, fine, you can have another story. Mm -hmm. That giving in 
gives them an experience where it's like, oh, if I push hard enough or I cry yeah. loud enough or I yell loud enough, I'm going to get what I want. And they're yes. brilliant. They wire that. So, you know, if your kid is like, I really want one more story or I really, and they're pushing, pushing. And yes. you've, maybe you've already said no more stories. You can say, you know what? I've changed my mind. We got through that last story a little quicker. We've got a few more minutes, but then this will be the last one. And then you hold that boundary. But giving in is very different from still being the one in charge and making a decision. Yes. Yes. I love that so much. And it, it's, it's so nice to be able to conceptualize that. I love the idea that it's okay to change your mind and showing that to our children. I think there's a lot of cognitive rigidity globally these days where I used to think this thing or I grew up thinking this thing and therefore I can't change my thought pattern. And so that's something that we can help our little ones develop at an early age. And also I love that my, my two-year-old who I wish she's been a three-nager since like 18 months. I don't know what happened. I mean, I I don't know. I know that's not a thing, but I don't know. But so that's the thing. She has just started screaming all the time. And my husband and I go back and have this conversation of like, where is the line between sitting with her in the emotion and giving, not giving in like for the sake of I'm putting my foot down, but like, she's going to realize if she screams, that's going to get her her response. And that's what's going to get her. So she's just going to keep doing it. And that, I mean, they're, they're children's brains are really pretty impressive. They really do pick up on that. Well, and listen, there's a reality of just surviving the moment. You know, if my 18 month old is screaming for some string cheese and I'm like, you know what? It's not worth it to me. Like just here, have some string cheese because the four-year-old needs my attention right now. So I think some of that is like just getting through the moment and not being too rigid around, oh, if I do this one time, whatever. But overall, we want the repeated experiences to be around, I'm holding a boundary, um, Like I'll give an example of a story I love to tell about a time my four-year-old um, would not get out of the bathtub. And he was mad about, want, he had a bunch of Lego guys, his older brother's Legos in the tub. And Luke was really generous in sharing them. But there was one Lego guy that, that JP really wanted. And Luke was like, that guy's special to me. I don't want him to get wet. So I wanted to honor Luke's, um, you know, he was so generous and I wanted to honor his preference there too. So I told JP, no, that guy can't go in the bathtub. And then it was like a, the whole thing was snake bit. Like he was freaking out through the whole bathtub. So I know I've got to get this kid out and I know I've got to get into bed because he's exhausted. And that's part of the reason why all of this behavior is happening anyway. So the first thing I do is I prepare myself to be the parent I want to be, which means I, for me, one of the things I do is I put my hand on my chest and my hand on my belly and I take a long, deep breath where my exhale is longer than my inhale. This is called the physiologic sigh or the physiological sigh. Mm-hmm. And when we do this, when we're like, and we do it one or two times, it's the quickest thing we know to downregulate our heightened states of arousal. Um, we do it throughout the day. I mean, all the time I'm like, like we do these sighs anyway, but if so, right. so I, I'm holding the sigh and then I prepare myself and I do a little self-talk and I say at his worst is when he needs you the most. If you want to be the calm in the storm, you cannot join the storm because these reactive states that our kids have are contagious and it's so easy to like get pulled into them. That so I true. first prepare myself. Then I say to JP, it's time to get out of the bath. You can either get out yourself or I will help you get out. And he says, I'm not getting out. And he splashes me. He's like, this wasn't even a really even a bathtub. I'm not even in the bath. And I'm like, I don't even know how to respond to that crazy. So, um, so I say, okay, it's time. Are you going to get out on your own? And he says, no, I'm not getting out. So I say to him and I say to myself, I'm going to get you out as gently as I can because I want to kind of squeeze. I'm like, oh, get out, you know. So I grab him under his little armpits. And as I'm pulling him out, I practice. So this is actually like the four S's of safe, seen, soothed, and secure in a discipline moment in action. So I'm creating first safety by not being reactive myself. I'm not creating, I'm not becoming the source of his fear or the source of his his, uh, feeling of unsafety by staying regulated myself. Because if I lose it, it, it gives cues of like, I can't even stay in control of myself. So there's no way I can protect you. So I'm going to help my kid have cues of safety by staying regulated and by holding my boundary and being predictable. Predictability creates safety. So I say it's time to get out. So now I'm going to practice scene though. As I'm pulling him out of the tub, I say, you're so mad about getting out. 
you really wanted that Lego guy and you're so, so mad you didn't get mm. to play with it. Is that right? And then he's like, yes. And I'm like, I know, buddy, it's so hard. So then I wrap the towel around him and I practice soothed. And this is really the whole foundation of the no drama discipline approach, which I'll, I can give an elevator speech in one sentence on that in just a second. Uh -huh. But if the point and purpose of discipline is to teach him, he's not unteachable. When her, they're having meltdowns, they can't learn anything. That's right. So I, so I'm going to soothe him and I'm going to regulate his nervous system with something called co-regulation. So I'm going to be like, I'm right here with you. And really we don't have to do anything. We don't even have to fix anything. Mm -hmm. um, we can, we can, our, it's really about our calm presence and our availability. So yes. I can say, um, I'm right here with you while you're feeling this angry. I'm right mm -hmm. here. I've got you. Mm. Um, and then, um, then he calms down within a couple of minutes and then it's time. So then what happened is he's felt safe, seen and soothed. So now his brain, just like when I lift weights and I do reps and I, those muscles get stronger. I've just, I'm not coddling him. I'm not making him fragile because I'm making, I'm comforting him when he's being bad. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing is giving his brain mm. a, an intentional experience that I'm going to hope to repeat throughout the days and throughout the years to give his brain reps and strengthen the ability to go from a dysregulated state back into a regulated state. Yes. So he's calm again. And then now his brain knows is like, now his brain knows my mom can handle my big feelings. I She trusts that I can handle my big feelings. She didn't try and talk me out of them or tell me they were, you know, that I was being a baby about them right. or she didn't try to distract me. She trusts that I can. And then now he's just had an experience of feeling angry and frustrated and disappointed and it being okay that he tolerated it. So that's how resilience is built is by practicing dealing with with hard things with co-regulation or with enough support. So right. that's really how we walk through one of those moments where we're still holding the boundary, but we're saying, so Aliza Pressman, who's one of my um, favorites, she's a developmental psychologist who has a podcast called Raising Good Humans and a book coming out called The Five Principles of Parenting. Um, she says, um, all behaviors are not okay, but all feelings are okay. Um, yes. And so I like that a lot. Yes. Oh, that, and that's really a beautiful way of putting that. And yeah. I, I, I just think about like the, what you see on TV from when we were growing up or what you hear of like our parents' generation and before where it was just like, get over it. Totally. Why, are so, why are you being so upset about that? Like I've done all these things for you. Yeah. And, and that's not helpful. I mean, if someone responds to me that way, I'm like, okay. And here's the thing too, is the brain is an association machine. So um, things get wired together. So if when my kid shares their feelings with me and I either freak out or I, I criticize them being like, why are you making such a big deal about that? Or I dismiss and I'm like, I'm like, that's, you don't need to be that upset. Mm -hmm. um, when I do those things, it does not feel good to them. And so then their brain's like, wow, I shared how I felt through my behavior or whatever it is. And that didn't feel good. So I'm not sure I'm going to keep doing that. I'm not sure I'm going to keep sharing. So what we want to do instead is give our kids the feeling like when I shared myself with my parent, that felt good. I liked that. That worked for me. I feel cared for. I want to do more of that. Mm. I know because I think about that all the time of like, how do you get to a space? Because I, I can only imagine and envision what it would look like only having a two and four year old. But when because my my four year old for a while now, since he's been about three and a half, is in a space where like he'll lie to say like that wasn't me because that's that, of course he's, you know, he's just leveling up. That means he's able to operate in a new way that is understand. He's got a good conscience um, and he's strategizing how not to get in trouble. It's evidence of brilliance. Yeah. Oh, hell, OK. Hey, I like that. <laughs> but so and it's been interested. It's interesting because I, I want him to know that he can come here to the safe space like the, the old expressions like you'll get in more trouble if you lie about it or you know something like that and so it's hard to kind of articulate that to a three and a half year old but also like how do i get to a space where he and i've been trying to utilize these tools to when he gets older and inevitably makes bad choices as we all do up until the day we die but to be able to be like not oh my gosh my mom's gonna kill me but i gotta go talk to my mom and see like have her help me and figuring out how to nurture that second space. 
Yeah, I wrote an article called Pants on Fire many, many years ago when my kids were little and lying. And it's so funny. I always like when I give parent talks um, and oftentimes I'm brought in like in um, school communities where there's a lot of conflict between parents or among teachers or whatever. Um, and I'm like, look, you're only getting half the story. And I'm telling you, even though you think your precious angel would never lie, all of your children are liars. Like, so I mean, let, me just, let me just break it down for you. But um, but, you know, one of the things that worked really well for me when my kids were not honest is when they were little is to say, you know what? Oh, I think we should start that story over again. Rewind, 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 rewind. And yeah. why don't we tell the story about what really happened? And so then you're not putting them into the corner. Like, are you telling are you not telling this? You know, the more you back them into the corner, the more they're going to lie because they're trying to get out of it and they don't want to disappoint you. And they don't want to the, the feeling of guilt feels terrible. Um, and so we just are like, wait, let's have a redo. That's a silly story. Let's try that again. And you bring kind of a levity to it. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love it. And God bless my husband. He listens to every minute of every one of these episodes. So he's going <laughs> to talk about this today after we get home anyway, before it, or when he gets yeah. up before it airs, but like, that's going to be a really good thing. Like what if we just start over? It's non-judgmental. Yeah. It's, and it's setting a safe space to try again while also holding the boundary and the accountability of Nana. Yeah. Yeah. And you can even be like, hmm, that's not, that doesn't seem like how I think it happened. So let's just rewind. Let's start over. Let's have a new story. What's the new story? You know, so you just give yeah. them a, a path out. You know, I want to say like, I think this whole approach to any kind of challenging behavior, like lying or anything else, let's go to this like main thing around the no drama discipline philosophy, which is this, the point and purpose of discipline at all, like why even do it? is to help our children become self-disciplined people, okay? Uh -huh. And the way we get them there is through waiting for development to unfold naturally and giving them lots and lots of practice building skills. So it's all about teaching. And really, when you go to the origin of the meaning of the word, when I talk about reclaiming the meaning of the word, the original meaning of the word is to teach. Mm. So if I want my child to become a self-disciplined person, that's going to actually create a lot less drama for me because once they become yes. self-disciplined, I don't have to discipline anymore because they're handling it. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. The way I get them there is through lots and lots of teaching and waiting for brain development. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for me, what that means is that every discipline moment is about teaching. When we are in reactive states, when our kids are having big emotions and they're not able to like think things through or make good decisions, which is why the bad behaviors are often happening in the first place. Mm. That is the worst time to teach because if my goal of every discipline moment is to teach or give them a rep or practice building a skill, um, then they have to be in a space where their brain is ready to learn. So I often am like, okay, what is it I want them to, to learn? So let's say my four-year-old hits his little sister. Okay. So to me, I'd be like, okay, what is it? What is it? I want my kid to learn. I want him to learn that it's okay to be angry, but not okay to hurt other people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Part of that I know is brain development. Like he's not going to do that when he's six or seven, like he does now. Right. So right. I'm going to wait for brain development, but I'm not going to just passively wait for brain development. I'm going to give him some practice mm -hmm. and some tools, and we're going to work out together. What can you do when you're angry? But I'm not going to have that conversation in the moment. In the moment, my kid is not ready to learn. So I now know what I want them to learn. My next question is, is he ready to learn? If the answer is no, we go straight to co-regulation. We're going to we're going to co-regulate, we're going to provide emotional responsiveness, we're going to calm down their little nervous systems, and once they're back in a regulated state, then they're ready to learn. But the other question we have to ask is am I ready to teach? Because if I'm reactive, I'm not going to be an effective teacher. Right. So it's all about getting them regulated so you can you can teach. Um yes. and usually when we think about things like punishment, even like a lot of log a lot of logical consequences, a lot of those things actually can be counterproductive. I'm not 100% anti-consequences. I think the way we do it matters a lot. Um, but I think that oftentimes our gut reaction is like, you did something wrong, here's your consequence. And none of that has any teaching involved. Learn, so there's nothing to learn, yeah. Yeah, and, and here's how you can evaluate your discipline your discipline response is to ask mm. yourself, am I responding to the misbehavior in a way that makes it more likely my child can do it better the next time or not? And if your child isn't, if you're like, go to your room 
And then I'll, you know, and then you just, you can come out in 20 minutes. Yes. How is your child supposed to know how to do anything better the next time? Like, right. In fact, they're probably more motivated to just hide the behavior next time. So I I often think that what we do in the name of discipline makes zero sense if you hold this idea that every discipline moment, and you don't have to take care of every moment, but discipline moments are about giving your child an experience that helps them do better the next time and over time. That's it. Amazing. Oh my gosh. You do a lot of redos, right? You do a lot of redos because then they're practicing and doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a story I tell about my five-year-old who hit his eight-year-old brother and left a handprint on his brother's back. He hit him so hard. Mm. Um, and the first thing I did was I said, oh, JP, you're so angry. Come here. And his like, he was like, oh, he was so furious. He was red and shaking. He was so angry. So the first thing I did was I was like, come here. You look so angry. Come, you know, and I know that that big, intense, negative emotions light up the brain the same way physical pain lights up the brain. Mm-hmm. So emotional pain and emotional um, dysregulation is extremely stressful for our children. So I'm if my kid skinned his knee, I'd be like, oh, come here. Let me help you. I'm going to do the same when emotions are, are intense for them. So yes. I'm going to say, JP, what happened? Come here. And I'm going to comfort him. And I'm going to take a deep breath while I'm holding him. If he runs off and says, leave me alone, I'm not going to chase him and force him to be in a cradle hold with me. I'm going to follow him and say something like, buddy, you're so angry. I'm just checking on you. And if he says, leave me alone, as long as he's safe, I'm going to say, I'm going to be in the kitchen and I'm going to come back and check on you in three minutes. And I'm right here if you need me. It's the availability of your presence. Mm -hmm. Some kids do better calming down on their own or playing or other things. So then I can say to him, like, what happened? And then once he's calm, he can tell me the story about how his brother did something mean to him. Um, I validate his feelings. Yeah, that would make me really mad too. And then I can say, it's okay to be mad. It's not okay to hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. So what can you do next time? Mm. And um, then we brainstorm together. And then we say, let's try that. Let's try that and see if that works for the next time. Um, But I've just had a reflective dialogue with my kid that helps him be more in touch with his own experience, what that felt, what words we use to describe that. And we've set up something to try or a a skill to go for for the next time. Um, So do I need to throw a consequence at him? No, because had I had I said to him, go to your room, you clearly can't be with people. I'm canceling your play date. He would have sat in his room and stewed over how mean I was to do this to him. And he would have taken zero responsibility. Whereas Mm. in the other time I say, you know, you really hurt your brother. And then he's like, yeah. And I'm like, you can go make things right with him. And he does have to take accountability. So as you can see, this is not permissive. I'm actually holding him accountable and we are, but, but we're, I'm responding in a way that moves him into a place where he can learn. And then I provide him an experience that helps him do better the next time. Now, if you have a really little kid, like a two or three year old, they're biting, you really can just, Say, like, reflect on the feeling like you were angry. Um, address the behavior. Biting hurts. No biting. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing you can do is move the heck on and stop giving so much attention to it. Say, I think I hear birds outside. Let's go see. Knowing that, Love that. as development unfolds, they're not going to bite. It's like right. they don't have the words and the experience, right? And you may have to be more proactive to protect your other the other sibling. But I think, and then as they get older, moving into three and four, you can add a fourth thing, which is what I just did there is to say, what can you do differently next time? And they may not have an idea, but you can share an idea. They might have a great idea. Sure. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I know we've got to get you out of here, but I, I, I feel like we could talk for another 60 minutes. So I just appreciate... <laughs> The validation, the ideas, the new way. I, that's the thing. I think it's very helpful for people to have a new way of, of approaching things, of thinking about things. And we don't get taught this stuff in school, really. Like there's no conversation about your left brain and your right brain. or it, it, There are sometimes, but not especially not as it affects, like I have a business degree and I had to take Psych 120, right? That was 20 years even, ago. So. Even doctoral level, like mental health people, and child development people more and more we're getting this, but this is not even how professionals are trained to think about things. Right. Right. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time. What a treat it's been. I've been looking forward to this so much. Can you please let everyone know, and it'll be in the show notes as well, where they can find you. My website is tinabryson.com and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And then I'm all over social media. I especially love to post on Instagram and my handle there is Tina Payne Bryson and that's P-A-Y-N-E-B-R-Y-S-O-N. 
And I'm all, in fact, if you go on my Instagram, I did 20 discipline mistakes that we make all the time. And I've made every single one of them. And it's actually what we have in the appendix of the no drama discipline book, but yes. I walked through each of those. So you can find them. They were called mistake Mondays. Uh -huh. Um, and so I did them on Mondays and I went through all 20 discipline mistakes and told us Amazing. how to not make them. So there's some really great free content out there. My favorite thing is supporting parents and doing the hardest and most rewarding thing ever. And that's raising our kids. So, yeah. um, and I will take, um, I do take listener questions or, you know, questions on Instagram and DMS. I do make videos and respond to people's questions amazing well again thank you thank you so much everyone please um go find dr tina payne bryson everywhere thank you again for the time and for everyone out there be curious not judgmental goodbye if spending time with the perinatal podcast is something you value and enjoy it would mean so much if you could write a review of the show on your app and don't forget to subscribe so you get a notification when new content is posted take a moment to leave a five-star rating too Fresh content is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your content, and you tuning in to every episode is what helps keep us going. Follow me at Amplify Wellness with Meg on Instagram, and you can find more content by searching the hashtag, The Perinatal Podcast. Our show is executive produced by David Presley and produced by Meg Duke. Our theme song was written and performed by Antoine McDuffie.